Well, I uh, wanted just to briefly elaborate a little bit more on the intro to biblical counseling thing that is coming up. If you don't know what that is, biblical counseling is just discipleship in another form. It gives tools for how to uh, help others to grow. Um, my friend Brian Sayers, who's going to be coming and doing this course, he's a top-notch teacher. Uh, he would describe it as being a skilled spiritual friend, where you're able to come alongside others and help them to grow. And uh, as elders, we are strongly encouraging everyone who is able to attend those th- um, seminars um, to do so. Whether you're going to pursue certification in biblical counseling or not, we would hope a few would, but it will help you to grow, and it will help you to help others to grow. And so strong, strong exhortation of encouragement to attend uh, normally for the three weekends, and this is top-notch quality instruction, $145, but for us, uh, we get the discount of $65 per person, and it is worth every penny. Um, So I hope you will set those days aside. But now let's turn our attention to Matthew. And you remember where we have been, right? Matthew 1 through 4, uh, we've seen the presentation of Jesus as king. We've seen that from uh, the genealogy. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is the one who is the second Moses who's going to lead his people out of exile. He is the ultimate Davidic king. He's been approved by the Father. He's shown that he's the ultimate son of God that has succeeded in temptation where others have failed. We've also seen in four, uh, Matthew 4, 18 through 25, as he has gathered followers, disciples, uh, those who follow, uh, are following and learning from him, around him. And we've seen him give him foretastes of the kingdom, appetizers, as it were, as he has healed people. And as he has healed people, we've seen people flock to him. And we're questioning and wondering, okay, we've got these crowds and we've got these disciples Uh, Are the crowds as committed as the disciples are? And then, right after that, we come to the first discourse of five in Matthew. And what we said last week, we gave an overview of this discourse. We talked about it. And what is Jesus doing? Uh, We see in verses one and two, let's just go ahead and read those, kind of the setting for this sermon, just to remind ourselves. Uh, Five, one through two says this, seeing the crowds, those who have flocked to him because of his healing, he went up on the mountain. And that phrase in Greek, and if you were to look back in the Greek Old Testament, you would see that that exclusively refers to Moses going up on Mount Sinai. And here we see uh, Matthew and Jesus alluding to that reality. Why? Because Jesus is about to give his law through no intermediary. He's no intermediary like Moses. He is giving the law himself because he is the Messiah. He is the God-man. And when he sat down, he's sitting down in this this authoritative teaching stance, the disciples, those committed followers, those who have repented, remember that idea of repentance, they've turned from sin and self, their allegiance from sin and self to God, to entrust themselves to him for for righteousness. They're following Christ. These are the people who have already repented. They've heeded Jesus' message of repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. These committed followers draw near to him. He's teaching them first and foremost of all, and then secondarily, he's teaching the crowds, those who might be uh, disciples. Uh, he's, he's fished for these crowds, so to speak, with his healing, and yet there's a question, are they going to commit or not? Well, they need to know what it takes 
what Jesus calls his disciples to, which is really what this sermon is about. It is about the righteousness that Jesus' followers will have, not because of who they are in and of themselves, but because they are following Jesus, who is, going, who is introducing the new covenant and the new covenant reality of the Spirit indwelling to cause to obey God's standard, God's righteousness, which is presented in this sermon. These disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And what we encounter first in the sermon is what's become known as the Beatitudes. I don't know if you've ever thought about where that word Beatitude came from. It, is a transla- it came from the Latin translation of the Bible. Uh, the, the idea of blessed got translated, uh, transliterated into Latin as uh, be- beatus, uh, and that's where we get the word Beatitude from, that word blessed. And that brings up an interesting question, right? Uh, you might, uh, just like uh, uh, any sermon or discourse, uh, there's a purpose in why Jesus starts the way he does. Why does Jesus start with these beatitudes? Why does Jesus start in this way? And since he starts with the idea of this word blessed, that actually raises a question, a question that we could ask ourselves and that would connect also with the disciples of that time. How do you know, how do you know whether you are living a blessed life or a flourishing or a happy human life? How do you know that you're living the good life? How do you know? Now, certainly our culture has uh, many ideas about what the blessed life looks like. The flourishing human life usually involves a lot of money and a lot of power, uh, long life, family, all sorts of uh, material possessions or even uh, good circumstances or even uh, might extend to family around. And so that's how the culture would measure it. But you even see uh, Christians in Christian culture you know, if you're a Facebook person or you go on social media uh, you, or even in stores uh, or Christian stores, you see those little signs that say blessed, right? I'm blessed. And what are they often referring to? How do they know? How, how are these even Christians presenting that they know that they are blessed? They're living the flourishing life. Well, often it's the same way our culture measures the blessed life. I have a, a God has given me security. He has given me a lot of possessions. Uh, he's given me a good family. And those are not bad things. Don't misunderstand me. But that's how they're measuring the blessed life. And it was much the same. It was much the same for even uh, Israel's history. As uh, you see, if you think about blessing and throughout all of Scripture, uh, one of the things that you would, one of the passages you'd be immediately led to would be, Deuteronomy 28. You know, we, we talked about the context where Jesus is giving his law, and he says sort of second Moses that's going to lead his people out of exile. But that reminds you of the first law. And the first law in Deuteronomy, and its uh, restatement, ends with blessings and curses. Uh, blessed are you, uh, if you. If you obey the commandments, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, namely land, seed, and blessing, wealth, uh, a lot of physical material possessions. Why was that? Well, 
uh, what, uh, why was that in context? It was, a, it was part of God's mission for Israel. It, wasn't, it, it was designed as a corporate reality that as this nation, as he would bless this nation and he, God, would be king over this nation with his appointed king in charge, he would bless this nation. Why? To attract the nations of the world to know God. You see, the blessings in Deuteronomy 28 were a corporate reality, but what tended to happen in Israel's history, and it, trans- it continued even to Jesus' day with the disciples, is they then illegitimately transferred that principle over to individuals. You see, that blessings and curses was a corporate reality for Israel, for a particular nation, a particular time, with a particular mission. But then what people began to do is to say, well, if you have a lot of stuff... If you have a lot of possessions, if you have the good life, you have, you have a family and it's, you have wealth, you have money in the bank, you have security, you have all these things, therefore, you must be favored by God. You must be righteous. And you can see this, that that idea carried over even to Jesus' day. Turn to Matthew 19 just to, to see this. And well, why we're doing this is it frames really why Jesus begins with the Beatitudes but look at Matthew 19, 23 briefly. And this is right after the, the rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, eventually he says, sell all you have and follow me. And he doesn't because he's got a lot of possessions and he can't give them up. But what's interesting about this is how the disciples respond. And it shows their mindset and the mindset of the day and how the idea of something like Deuteronomy 28 had been corrupted. Look at verse 23. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now watch the disciples' response. This is interesting. Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? Do you see their mindset that is going on behind the scenes, right? They're astonished that Jesus would say, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because in their mindset, if you have a lot of wealth, if you have a lot of material possessions, if you have a lot of family, if you have a lot of security, therefore, that must mean that you're in favor with God and you will be saved. And so by him saying, if you're rich, that's really hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like, well, what is the blessing, uh, you know, going on in Deuteronomy 28 all about? That's their mindset. But really what even in the Old Testament you see is that whereas when, when the corporate reality of Israel is obeying the Lord, they do get blessed under a righteous king for this mission to the world. What you often see is that there is the nation as a whole is not righteous There's a select group that are following God's laws and following his way, and yet they're in the minority in Israel, those who truly know the Lord, and they're actually persecuted. They're actually afflicted. Uh, You can think of the prophets. Uh, Even Jesus references them in the Beatitudes of the prophets being persecuted. Why were they persecuted? Because they did righteousness. Well, wait a minute. These are the guys that are obeying the law. Why aren't they blessed? The way Deuteronomy 28 talks about, because Deuteronomy 28 blessings and the curses were a corporate reality for the nation of Israel for a particular 
mission and purpose. And what Jesus is doing, why is he starting with the Beatitudes? Because he's reprogramming the disciples' minds. He's reprogramming the disciples' minds about what the blessed life, what the flourishing life, what the good life looks like. If Jesus is the second Moses who's going to lead out of exile, yes, there ultimately are going to be the blessings talked about in Deuteronomy 28 because that's where everything is going. The, the, the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled. That's what the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 are referring to. That's going to happen, but it happens through affliction. It happens through even injustice. And Jesus is reprogramming his disciples' minds to realize that if they're following Jesus, and Jesus knows he's going to be afflicted, he's going to be the perfect righteous one, he's going to be afflicted, he will have nothing, seemingly, and if the disciples are going to follow him, they can't expect anything less. So in order to endure that, in order to endure that idea of being lowly and afflicted, just like Jesus will be, he has to do some reprogramming, and that's what the, the Beatitudes do. They, they engage with the idea of blessing, and yet they reframe it. They reframe it so the disciples can think rightly about it. And that's the same for us. We need our minds reprogrammed about what living the good life, what living the flourishing life, the blessed life looks like. So let's see the main idea of this whole section of the Beatitudes and I would frame it this way, reckon yourself blessed as humble, afflicted, and righteous in following Jesus because you will have the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's what Jesus wants his disciples to take away from this section. That's what he wants us to take away. Reckon yourself blessed as humble, afflicted, and righteous in following Jesus because you will have the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, forewarning, I was planning on getting through all 12 verses of the Beatitudes and I ran through it, and I could only get through the first four in uh, 50 minutes. So we're going to do uh, the first four today, just fair warning. So you can save your notes for next week if you want, or you can get some fresh ones uh, next week, but that's where we're going. And there really are, just a couple preliminary uh, remarks about the Beatitudes, there are two sets of four Beatitudes. The first four are grouped together, and the second four are grouped together. In the original, the first four, the categories of people spoken to, the poor, uh, those who mourn, the meek, they all start with the Greek letter P. They're alliterated. They're grouped together. You can also see they're grouped together because uh, the last and the, the, the fourth and the eighth beatitude both talk about righteousness. So there's two sets of four. The first four, what you're going to see is that there's a vertical relationship going on. It's, it's people's interaction with God. And then the second four, what you're going to see is it's people's react, uh, interactions with people. One is vertical. The first four are vertical in the relationship, relationship with God. And the second four are horizontal in relationships with people. Other preliminary mark I need to make real quick is the word blessed. The word blessed. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but it's, uh, you know this if you speak two languages, but it's actually really hard sometimes to bring a concept that one word is communicating in one language over into the target language. And that's the case with this word, blessed. The Greek word is makarios, which you don't need to remember at all, but just know that this is a particular word that has a background to it. 
It has a background to it. You see, the Jews would have been familiar with the Greek Old Testament, and this word for makarios that's used in the Old Testament always translates one particular word, and it doesn't translate the word that is normally used of God's blessing. Did you hear that? There's two words for ble- uh, sort of that get translated often blessing in the Old Testament. One is the word uh, barak, which again, you don't need to remember that name. You just need to know that there's a particular word, which is used, say, in Deuteronomy 28, that refers to God pronouncing a blessing on someone. In other words, uh, a blessing in, in, in that sense is, is a performative speech. When I pronounce a blessing on you, right, like, like a priest or God himself is pronouncing a blessing on you, that's not this word. That's not this word. Instead, this is the word, uh, it's called ashray in the Old Testament. Again, you don't need to remember that, but what you need to know is it's a different word. It's a totally different word. It's the word that's used in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who, uh, who walks in, doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his meditation is in the law of the Lord. And the sense of that word is not a pronouncement of blessing. It is a recognition of a favorable state. Uh, It's hard to bring over into English. Uh, We could try to bring it over with the word happy. Sometimes you hear people talk about that with with, uh, the Beatitudes. Happy are those who. But it's not like it's the word that says, oh, you're emotionally happy in this sort of way. Uh, Another way you could try to bring it over is the word flourishing. Flourishing are those who do this. What is going on there, though, is a recognition of living what we would call the good life. Uh, the person who's living the good life, that's what this word makarios would be used for. You're living the good life if this is going on. And this is how Jesus is framing this. This is how Jesus is framing this. It's not a pronouncement of blessing. It is a recognition that someone in a a particular category is living a happy or a flourishing state. Uh, uh, They're living the good life is the idea. They're happy. Not in the sense of they're emotionally happy, but the total circumstances and state they are in is good. Is good. And so now you start to see some of the structure of this. Each one of these Beatitudes has a particular structure. Happy or flourishing are the people in such and such category... And that category is often one that's like, that doesn't seem like a good category. That doesn't seem like a happy category. But that's not why they're happy or flourishing. It's because of the future reality that's expressed in the because portion that they're pointing to. In other words, uh, mourning, just to give an example, it doesn't sound like a happy category. It's not. Is it happy are those who mourn? What? How does that work? Well, it's not because you're mourning, but it's because of what the mourning points to in the because section of the Beatitudes. And that's what you have to understand before we launch into discussing these. Jonathan Pennington, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, has a really helpful, concise way of describing the general pattern here. Listen to this. What's being said, essentially, in all these Beatitudes, here's the format. Flourishing or happy are those in these paradoxically lowly states and who live in this way, because in reality now and eschatologically, which just means far future when everything, uh, God wraps everything up with the kingdom, uh, reality now and eschatologically, they are recipients of great blessing. 
So the blessing's not on the blessed side of the equation. It's on the future side of the equation, the because side. Let me read that again. Flourishing happy are those in these paradoxically lowly states and who live in this way because in reality now and eschatologically, they are recipients of great blessing. The blessing is in the future, not now, but Jesus recognizes that those who live in a particular way now are actually the ones who are living the good life, even though externally it doesn't look that way. And so with that background, before we launch into the Beatitude, let's now go ahead and look at the first four. The first four. And we could kind of describe the first four under this heading. Uh, what's going on here is the blessed reversal of the dependent righteous. The blessed reversal for the dependent righteous in verses three through six. So let's just march with each one going one at a time. Verse three, happy or flourishing are the poor with reference to the spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So now we have to dissect this. We have to understand the category. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, like with a lot of other things in Matthew, there is an Old Testament background. There is an Old Testament background to this category of being poor in spirit, and it's actually in a passage and in a book we've seen lots in Matthew, and that is the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. So turn briefly over to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And I want you to listen to the language of Isaiah 61. And remember Isaiah. Remember what's going on in Isaiah. Isaiah is, uh, says to Israel, you're going into exile, but God's going to bring you out of that. God's going to bring you out of that by dealing with your sin, Israel, and he's going to send the servant, the suffering servant, to deal with your sin and also to lead you out in a second exodus. So these themes are tightly connected what we've, what we've been seeing in Matthew already. So look at Isaiah 61. This is in this context of rescue from exile. And listen to this, Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. And it goes on, but what is being described here is the rescuer, the servant's going to come, the one who has the spirit on him, and we know who that is because we saw in Jesus' baptism, he's got the spirit. He's the one who's rescuing from exile, and he's the one reversing these conditions. But the word there for poor that you see in verse 1 Good news to the poor, it's the same exact word that's used in Matthew. What's interesting is the Hebrew behind this word is a word that has the kind of general notion of afflicted. You may be afflicted because you are materially destitute, or you may be afflicted for some other reason. But the idea of, in the Old Testament, of this, these kind of afflicted folks, these kind of poor folks, is that they're so poor, they have nothing, even injustice is being done to them, but what do they do? They ultimately depend on God. They are utterly dependent on God because of they have nothing else. 
They have nothing in the world because of injustice or circumstances or whatever. Here it's because of the circumstances of exile. They're in the conditions of exile. There's, uh, they have nothing. They don't have what they have, uh, what, what is promised by God because of disobedience or sin or whatever, but they have nothing in the world. They have nothing in a world of exile. Now, Jesus, back in Matthew 5, he tacks on poor, and the idea is poor with reference to the spirit, the internal part of a human being. That's how Matthew uses it. Matthew uses the spirit in one of two ways, either the Holy Spirit, which doesn't seem to fit in this context, or in terms of the human spirit, the internal uh, immaterial part of a human being. So what is he saying? He's saying that whether you have a lot or not, you need to have the attitude of being poor or afflicted or lowly in spirit, meaning that whether you have a bounty in material possessions or not, you need to have the attitude that you have nothing in a world of exile. You have absolutely nothing in a world of exile. Even if you have materially a lot of stuff or or good circumstances, you recognize that you are utterly dependent on God for absolutely everything, and nor are you putting any stock in the things of this world. And then you see the reversal. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs, or belonging to them, is the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen the kingdom of heaven a lot already, right? What is the kingdom of heaven? It is the kingdom that God has planned since Adam, right? The, the, the idea of God is ultimate ruler, but he has his chosen king reigning over the earth, over all things. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom authorized by heaven. It's the kingdom coming down from heaven that will come in the future. And what Jesus is saying is those who have the attitude that they have nothing here, They have nothing here in exile. They are utterly dependent on God, and they're looking forward to the future. They're looking forward to the reversal that God himself will bring in giving them a share in the kingdom. The world would say something, right? If you think about what the world would say, right? The the attitude of the world would be, the good life is if you have a bunch here, if you have uh, all the stuff here, if you have security here, or even in, if you were to think about an individual, you are enough. That is a false message. Jesus says that's not the flourishing life. The flourishing blessed life is those who recognize they are utterly dependent on God for absolutely everything, whether they have a lot of materially or not. They are utterly dependent on God, and they are utterly dependent for the reversal of things in the world in the kingdom of heaven, and that's what they're looking forward to. You can't be any richer than having a share in the kingdom of heaven. What's nice about these is we can kind of directly apply them right away, right? What is Jesus doing? He's reprogramming the mindset of the disciples. So let's think about that. No matter how much or little you have in terms of material possessions, do you have the attitude that you ultimately have nothing and are utterly dependent on God in this exile on earth? Is your true treasure in the future kingdom of heaven? You see how diagnostic that question is, right? Jesus is speaking these to his disciples. So if you're following Jesus now, that's the attitude that you must have. That's the attitude that Jesus himself recognizes is the flourishing, the the blessed, the, the good life. 
Flourishing are the poor with reference to the Spirit, for that to theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the next one. Blessed or flourishing are those who are mourning, because they shall be comforted. Now, you remember we just read Isaiah 61, and did you hear when we read Isaiah 61 all that language about mourning? Right? There was a, a bunch of mourning going on in Isaiah 61. Why was there a bunch of mourning going on in Isaiah 61? Well, it's because of the exile, right? What is exile? It is, it is being away from God's presence. It's being out of your own country. It's being away. Why? Because, at least in Isaiah, ultimately because of sin. Because of sin. And in Isaiah 61, there's rescue coming. There's rescue coming from the servant, a reversal of exile and gladness and comfort coming because of the coming of the servant. There's a reversal of exile. So what does it mean when he's talking about those who are mourning? It's, it's the attitude, it's the idea that if you are aligned with God, if you're following Christ and you understand the way the world is from God's perspective Basically, on a daily basis, you are going to be mourning. You're going to be mourning. You're going to be sad. And that's why are you going to be sad? Because you're going to see the effects of sin. You're going to see the uh, sin in your own life and sin in the world and the effects of sin in the world and the devastation it causes. And you're going to, if you have a sworn allegiance to Christ and to God, right, that idea of repentance, turning allegiance from sin and self to God, if you're repentant in that way, you can't help but mourn because of the darkness, the sadness in our world because of sin. And Jesus says, you're actually living the good life if you mourn. Why? Because you understand this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We are waiting for the kingdom, God's kingdom with God's chosen king. And in that kingdom, there will be comfort. God himself will comfort those who mourn. It says that in Revelation 21, it speaks to this, where in that final state, those who have been mourning over the brokenness of exile, the brokenness of sin in their own lives and in the world, they will be comforted by God. He will wipe away every tear, including, uh, we've been having, we, we, Jim made a couple of announcements, memorial services, deaths, right? We, we experience that. That's, that's the ultimate reality of exile, death. And the fact of the matter is, we mourn and we weep because of the separation from loved ones and, and, and being, them being torn from us. And yet, no matter how much grief and tears that we shed over that, God will comfort, not now, those wounds don't heal now, but in the future, in the kingdom, when we are in God's presence, he will comfort us. And that's the attitude of a disciple in this world. The world says, don't worry, be happy. But the disciple of Christ says, this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and they mourn. And they look forward to the kingdom what, under Christ and the comfort that only God himself can bring. Do you mourn over sin and its devastating effects in your life and the world in exile at large? Effects of your sin, the effects of other people's sin, the effects of injustice, oppression, murder, adultery, 
We could go down the line, right? But these things should cause mourning, grief. We should not slap a band-aid over it and say, don't worry, be happy. No, we lament and we mourn because of what is happening in the world and something that only God himself can reverse. Are you looking for comfort now or are you looking for comfort from God himself, the comfort alone that God can bring in the future? So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And just like the first two had a background to them in Isaiah 61, we have more background. Uh, This one's really explicit in Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Go and turn to Psalm 37. And I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses. So verse 11 is kind of what's being quoted here. But I want to read to you the first 11 verses so that you get the context, uh, so we can understand the category that Jesus is speaking to. You'll see very great similarities with what Isaiah 61 talks about. Psalm 37 of David, by David. Psalm 37, by David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good, but dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, what's interesting is this word for meek that Jesus uses and that the Greek Old Testament uses is the same in verse 11, the meek. But again, what's interesting is the Hebrew word behind this word is the same exact word that was just mentioned in Isaiah 61, the word that means afflicted or lowly or poor, that injustice has been done to them. And that's what's going on the same thing in this psalm here. You've got the prosperous wicked, right, which seems to conflict with Deuteronomy 28. We talked about that before. You've got the prosperous wicked and the lowly and the poor and the oppressed and the afflicted righteous. But what are they supposed to do? The response that you see in this psalm, and you could keep reading and seeing the same thing, is the righteous poor, those who are dependent on God, they should trust in God and wait on him. Which informs our understanding of what does it mean to be meek. I, meek doesn't mean timid. Uh, it mean, uh, gentle is, is not a bad translation. It's the idea of lowly. It's the idea that you're not going to take, you're not going to retaliate. Injustice is being done to these folks, but they are meek. They are lowly. They're not trusting in themselves and their own aggression to take back their own rights. They are trusting themselves to God to act for them. Again, it's that idea of dependence. Dependence. 
And what's, contra- what's uh, what paradoxical about this is what Psalm 37 says and what Jesus is saying. Those people, the meek, the gentle, those who don't retaliate, they're not aggressive in seeking their own rights. They're living the good life. Why? For they shall inherit, and the word here is land. You saw it in Psalm 37, and you see it here. It's the land. What land? It's the promised land. Uh, That's what it means in uh, Psalm 37, and Jesus is speaking to Jewish disciples. It's the land promised to Abraham, right? Those who, uh, Jesus has been looking forward to the kingdom, right? And part of that kingdom is the Davidic king ruling over Israel, the promised land, and not only over Israel and uh, Jerusalem, but over the whole world. So by extension, yes, we could speak of the earth, but he's talking about the fulfillment of those promises. So even though you may be deprived of justice, and you see this in the Old Testament where the rich would start taking land that wasn't theirs and adding it to themselves, God says in Psalm 37, and Jesus says, your, your proper response is not to retaliate, to be aggressive in response, to seek your own rights, but rather to entrust yourself to God who will make it right, which is counterintuitive to the world, right? If you want something, you take it. You grab hold of it. You, gra- uh, you grasp it. You do whatever it takes to get what you want. And here, what Jesus is saying, no. The flourishing, the good, the happy, the blessed life is when you don't, aren't aggressive, when you don't retaliate, and when you entrust yourself and dependent on God to make things right. That's how Jesus' disciples act and respond. Are you aggressive when you are wronged, seeking to make things right on your own strength? Or do you entrust yourself to God and wait for him to vindicate you in the kingdom? You see how Jesus is reprogramming his disciples. He's getting them to play the long game. He's getting them to play the long game. The good life is not here. You're not going to find it here. The good life is when you live in these paradoxical ways that the world despises, but you're following Christ, your allegiance is Christ, your allegiance is God, and then you're vindicated in the long run. And that's the way you have to think if you're going to live the Christian life. You have to play the long game. You have to play the long game because otherwise you will not persevere under the affliction and the persecution that happens to Christ's followers in this world. We look at the fourth one, And the final one in this set. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we saw in both Psalm 37, did you notice in Psalm 37 and in Isaiah 61, the language of righteousness, right? These folks that are mentioned in uh, Isaiah 61 and um, uh, Psalm 37, they are righteous, right? They are are, uh, uh, seeking to behave righteous in the world, and yet they are afflicted. Righteousness has been denied to them. Justice has been denied to them, but they are seeking to live righteous lives. So which is Jesus referring to? Is he hungering and thirsting for righteousness to be done to me? Or is it hungering and thirsting for righteousness that I am displaying as an individual? I think it's both. 
I think it's both and, right? Because, because the reality of exile, uh, these conditions of exile, is that there is not righteousness. That goes back to the morning, right? The, the conditions of exile are because of sin in the world. And that's what Isaiah speaks to, right? The only way to deal with exile is to deal with sin. Or conversely, the only way to deal with exile is to have righteousness, to have righteousness, not just internally as, as, as much as that is, but also righteousness permeating the whole world. Do you remember what Jesus said at his baptism? It's fitting now for us to fulfill all righteousness, right? That act in the baptism where he is displayed by the Father, uh, by the Spirit, to be the, the servant, the, the Spirit-anointed conqueror of Isaiah, but what is the, the servant and the, the spirit-anointed conqueror come to do? They come, he comes to fulfill all righteousness, not just individually, but in the entire world. And those whose allegiance is to God and to Christ, they see the lack of righteousness in themselves and in the world, and they, they hunger and thirst for it. I mean, the language here is so vivid, right? You're, you're just... You ever, I don't know if you've ever been work, had a hard workout, it's been a hot day, all right, and you're just, you're just parched, and then that first drink of water, right, that first drink of water that touches your list is so refreshing, right? That's the idea here, right? You're hungering and thirsting, you're longing for this righteousness. It's kind of a visceral sort of, sort of notion that's going on here, and what is the promise, what is the promise? Those, those who are aligned with God, those who are following Christ, who see what is wrong with the world because of human sin and the lack of righteousness, and who hunger and desire for righteousness in their own lives and in the world, what's their promise? Where is the blessing? The blessing is in the because portion, because they shall be satisfied. And words for satisfied here, it's, it's kind of the word stuffed, right? Like you're, you're full, right? Like Thanksgiving full. Uh, that, that's kind of the idea of this word. You want righteousness in your own life and in the world. Well, don't worry because a day is coming when the kingdom comes that righteousness will permeate not only every individual, but the whole entire world. And so if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness now, and you ought to be if you're aligned with Jesus and to God, you will be satisfied. Which is encouraging when you think about your daily walk as a Christian, and especially as we march through this sermon, uh, if you have a pulse and are listening to what Jesus is saying, you know you fall short. You will say, I am not righteous. I am not righteous. There is so much filth and corruption in my heart. I am not good. I am not good. Nor is, uh, and if you look out into the world and you see the corruption and the wickedness that is out there, and you know you're part of it, and you recognize that, and you mourn, and you have that attitude of repentance. Yes, I turn from sin and self. I don't want my sin. I don't want to go after it at all. I want to be righteous. I want to follow God because my allegiance is to him. And you keep coming back to the reality that Christ is the one to fulfill all righteousness. Not only is he accounting his righteousness to his disciples, but he is progressively producing righteousness, concrete uh, conformity to uh, God's standard and God's desires in their lives through the Spirit, and ultimately complete and total righteousness in the future in the kingdom. 
Do you desire that which conforms to God's standard and character? Do you desire that? Do you have a real desire for conformity to God's standard and character in your own life and in the world at large? And then are you patiently waiting for the future fulfillment of that desire? You see, all four of these first ones have to deal with the issue of dependence. Their relation to God. They all have an aspect of being in a world in exile and affliction that Jesus' followers will face. How do you make it through? You remember these. You remember that when you're tempted to find satisfaction in the material things and security of this world, you realize, oh, but that's not the blessed life. A flourishing life is being poor with reference to the Spirit, remembering that I have nothing in this world, but God is my treasure, and I will have him in the kingdom. When you feel overwhelmingly sad in the world because of its corruption, its evil, because of your evil, because of your corruption, you remember, yeah, but Jesus says that those who mourn over those effects of sin and exile in the world are are living a flourishing life because they will be comforted. They will be comforted. And when you're wrongfully treated, and you will be if you are following Christ, and you're tempted to retaliate, you're tempted to seize your own rights, you'll remember, oh, but Jesus said the flourishing life, the good life, is actually not to be aggressive, to not retaliate, but to leave it to God, to be dependent on Him, and He will make it right, and He will give part of the kingdom, part of a renewed earth in the future. Or when you're tempted, when you, when you're, you, you see your lack of righteousness and goodness before God, which is every day, and you desire for that not to be there, and you're frustrated, you say, but, well, this is good. This is actually good. Jesus said that this is a flourishing life because that shows that God is at work in my life. I'm following Jesus. I have his desires, and he will satisfy me. And measure now with, per, uh, with his account, uh, per, uh, accounted righteousness, his imputed righteousness, first and foremost, and then with a progressive growth in righteousness as a Christian, and then finally in the kingdom with a perfect righteousness, I will be satisfied. This is all the language of dependence on God doing these things, reversing these conditions. And if you keep these in mind, you can play the long game. You can play the long game and say, all right, my blessing, the good life is not here and now, it is in the future. Where do you need to change? See, what the, Jesus is doing, the disciples had the same problem. We saw that from the rich young ruler, right? They had the same problem that our culture has, that even mainstream Christianity has, that I'm blessed because I have all this stuff, life is good, I'm secure. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite of that. Where do you need to change your understanding of blessing or flourishing as a disciple in light of Jesus' assessments in these statements? Remember, this is Jesus' assessment. God in flesh assessing life in this way. Are you driven by the here and now or by the future blessings for following Christ? That's really what these Beatitudes are getting us to do. And that's why Jesus starts this way. This is how a disciple needs to think. This is how a disciple needs to think. Let's pray that God would produce that in our hearts and lives.
Jesus, you have the true perspective. You know what the blessed and flourishing life is, and Lord, you're trying to get us to play the long game. The blessings you have for us in the future far surpass anything that this life could ever hold, mainly because it's you that we get to have in eternity. It's not just the the kingdom and all the wonderful side effects of the kingdom. It's you who are at the center of the kingdom. You are our treasure. Lord Jesus, we are disciples. We see that we are, don't have the righteousness that we ought to have. We, we don't mourn as we ought to mourn. We see all sorts of brokenness in the world, and yet we, we follow you. We look to you. We are dependent on you to reverse these things in the world, to change us, to make us yours. Help us to remember these things through our lives. Help us to live this way. Help us to be poor in spirit. Help us to mourn over the, 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 the darkness in the world and the darkness of our own hearts. Help us to be lowly and meek and not retaliatory in our attitudes. And help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be a people that hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own lives, in our actions, and in the world. We thank you for your sermon, O oh Lord God, that you have given us, your instruction. We know we can only change because of the Holy Spirit you've put in us as new covenant Christians. We, we thank you and we praise you. Help us as we go now to live this life even this week. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.